Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today's another fantastic day for an interview because I've got Candace Platter with me. Um, Candace is a woman who is so close to my heart with her topic because she is talking about the addiction as a family disease. And she's focusing on the the families, the people, the loving people around the addict who sometimes can be a problem in their own. And I'm I'm here today to discuss it with Candace. So Candace, welcome to my show. Thank you, Stefan. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, Candace, thank you so much that for, for, for joining me today and spending some of your valuable time because you no, are... Happy. Uh, <laughs> you're a very busy woman uh, being out there actually helping um, addicts and their families to to see what is really going on. But how did you actually end up in that situation? What is what is your background? How did you how did you come to that point? Oh, my gosh, you want my story? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, the the pertinent part of it starts in the early 70s when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Most people know what that is now, but it's an inflammatory bowel disease that's very hard to manage. It's painful. It's debilitating, embarrassing, all that stuff. Um, when I was diagnosed with it, the doctors, it was kind of the new disease on the block, and the doctors really didn't know what to do for me. In fact, some of them thought that it was all in my head which it wasn't, <laughs> but um, what they did, because they didn't know what else to do, is they gave me a, a lot of addictive medication to take. Oh. And I like to believe that they didn't know what they were unleashing upon me, but I know that there's still a lot of doctors are still doing this. So that's, you know, don't get me started on that unless you want to talk about it. But, um, you know, they gave me Valium, benzodiazepines, they gave me opioids, they gave me uh, codeine and oxycontin and Demerol and morphine and just gave it to me and kept refilling the prescriptions over and over. And, you know, uh, it was coming from it was coming from the doctors. First of all, I was a good girl at the time. I'm not anymore, but I was. And uh, addiction wasn't on the radar then. Um, certainly not the way it is now. And so, so if you fast forward about 15 years of this, I was basically an opioid addict for 15 years without even knowing it, without knowing what was happening to me. And these medications, I also smoked a lot of pot because that helped and I liked it. So I smoked it. Mm -hmm. um, and all of those medications, all of those substances are depressants in the human system they're not like cocaine where you're you know happy they're depressants and so after about 15 years of taking them regularly every day I was so depressed that I actually was suicidal and I wasn't sure I wanted to live anymore and I I was starting to feel that pretty strongly it scared me so I uh, I I knew I had a choice to make. Was I going to die or was I going to reach out for help and try to figure out how to live? 
So that's what I did, obviously, because here I am. But I reached out to the crisis center here in Vancouver. I'm in Vancouver, Canada, one of the most beautiful places in the world, if not the most beautiful place. Um, <laughs> I and agree. I reached out. Yeah, it's beautiful here. <laughs> I, so I reached out to the crisis center and that person, I don't even remember if it was a man or a woman at this point, because that was 35 years ago. And that person said to me, you have a choice. You can either keep using these substances or you can stop using these substances. And that was like the most empowering thing I had ever heard. I didn't know how to stop at the time, but I, I thought, oh, you know, I don't have to live like this forever. So on the advice of a psychiatrist, I'm really nutshelling this, but on the advice of the doctor, I signed myself in to a psych ward here in Vancouver. And I was there for about four weeks. And at that time, the psych ward looked like cuckoo's nest, you know, with the gray slab concrete walls. And um, But while I was in there, because I, I was afraid, I was afraid that if I had my clothes, you know, if I was able to get out into the world, I, w I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I would stay alive. And so I, I just needed people to take care of me at that point. Um, so while I was in there, I met two other people who were trying to come off drugs and alcohol. And we used to sit around the table and, you know, and then we'd pass it and we'd try to pretend it was real, you know, but it was fun and it passed the time. And, and right. it was like for a moment, I thought you had smuggled them in uh, because no, you wouldn't be. <laughs> you wouldn't be the first one because I mean that's the very first thing that a, a rehab hospital does is basically go for your clothes, go for your baggage yep. and everything because yep. you wouldn't be the first that's one who has right. got their supplies yep. there. Okay, no, sorry. It so was absolutely make believe and and <laughs> and we did it very well. But these these two people were going to Narcotics Anonymous across the street from the right. hospital at right. the nurse's residence every single day at noon. And so I started going with them. And, um, you know, I would sit in those meetings and just weep. I would just bawl my eyes out. And, and there were there were bikers there, like real bikers with tattoos and leather and chains and <laughs> F and this and F and that. And, you know, and and I'd just kind of sit there in shock and cry. And then they would come up to me later and they'd hug me and they'd say, keep coming back, you know, which is not something I heard in my own family often at all. So it was, it was really, a, a it, it was an amazing time and it was the beginning of my recovery. So that's how I got into recovery. And next month I'll be celebrating 35 years clean and sober. Woohoo! Wow. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I still have Crohn's, but it's so much better because I've learned how to take care of myself. It's uh, exactly. one of those incurable things, I guess. Oh, wow. Um, and see, Candace, so no, yeah. Candace, this is exactly, this is exactly what is so important to realize because those of us who have seen the darkness, we are so, so keen yeah. to get into the light, stay there and show others that it is possible. And that is exactly what you're doing. That's why you are convicted, why you are you are resolute about your uh, your path. 
And that is what yeah. makes you true and honest in your appearance. You're not someone mm-hmm. who has read a book. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, uh, yeah, well, oh, yeah, I could do that. I could do a bit of psychology. Uh, no, it is. No. <laughs> we, we have been in the darkness. And we have been I, in the darkness. Yeah. Hell yes. Um, but and again, it is for for younger viewers and, and listeners. Quick history recap: In the seventies, medicine was different. Seventies, uh, eighties, around the world, um, doctors had very little clue about addiction. We didn't understand that it is a disease. We didn't understand that there are that there are so many factors influencing it and how powerful it is. Uh, this was a time when everyone smoked, when everyone drank, uh, when it was all normal. And in in Germany, there's a whole a whole generation of women um, who were ending up a bit stressed, go to their doctor and say, yeah, yeah, here's some volume. That is absolutely here. You go for it, girl. Um, and, and, the, and the Rolling Stones wrote, wrote a song about it, a great song, Mother's Little Helper. Oh, here you go. That's they, all about getting that Valium for the mothers and for the, yeah. I know women were totally addicted to it. Absolutely. And that was, that was, we had no idea. We thought at that time addiction is a, uh, is something, something that you can, that you don't need to do. You, you look down upon that is, that is a behavior that is your choice mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Um, well, Nancy Reagan later on in the eighties, just don't do it. Um, yeah. and that bullshit, it was, we had no understanding. So let's not, let's not, uh, be, too hypercritical um, because we need to see it in the context of history and in the context of the knowledge of the doctors that were there at the time. Nowadays, this is a very, very, very different, different thing. Your doctor will uh, consider maybe at times to give you an opiate, but there will very well be very clear guidelines. There will be a contract between you, the doctor, your GP, and maybe a pain specialist. There will be a very different, different story happening if you were a person who actually does need morphine or morphine-like drugs because you're in such severe pain that otherwise life is not worth living for you. But that is only only a tiny amount of a far more holistic approach uh, where we help you with psychology, physiotherapy, other non-opiate versions of painkillers. So that is, so when you look at pain medicine, that has evolved by magnitudes. Well, it it has. And also there there are doctors who keep prescribing these drugs. So it has changed a lot. And there are also doctors who keep doing it. And I think they are aware of addiction in a, in a different way today. They'd have to be. And they're still doing it. So I have an issue with that. That's another another podcast show, maybe. <laughs> but but, but <laughs> well, that is, Candace, it is still happening. Yeah. Candice, you're on. Um, you're on. We do a separate uh, show uh, because we both are passionate about that. And yeah. let's actually talk about the black sheep in my fraternity um, and why, for example, 80% of the illegally prescribed opiates are down there in the Florida panhandle. Um, and uh, sorry, is there so much pain down there? No. 
uh, let's talk about those things. And and I've had previously, I've had guests on where we discussed the fentanyl crisis, where we discussed all the, the current trends. So yes, guys, look forward to that. Candace is coming back and we're going to kick ass and we're going to actually uh, dive into the opiate epidemic as it is right now uh, but also as it is indeed as it is uh, as it is now but also historically how it actually developed um because there is it is you, you cannot uh look at something without knowing the background why things have happened so candace you're on you're coming back but right. let's let's come back. I, I bring you back and bring us back to to the topic today because ultimately addiction is a family problem. It's a family disease. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, do you want to know how I, I kind of went off and just told you my my initial yeah, story? I do. I do. Uh, I do. Keep going. So yeah. So once I got out of the psych ward, um, because they did eventually let me out, which was a good thing. Um, I was, I was, I, I needed about three years or so to, mm. to get well, you know, mm. from the Crohn's, from the addiction. Um, I think I needed to clean up so I could see how sick I'd been. That's, that feels like the right, you know, way to put it. And so about three years into my recovery, I wanted to get back to work and I wanted to work in the addiction field because I wanted to give back what I had been given. Um, so I was offered a job as an addiction counselor in the downtown east side area of Vancouver, which is the lowest income area of Canada. It's where most of the alcoholics and addicts and homeless and people with mental health congregate. So that it's that area of our country. And I loved being there. It was a big culture shock for me, but I loved working with the addicts and the alcoholics. And um, I was afraid every day that somebody was going to steal my car, but I loved the work that I was doing. So I was there for 16 years. Wow. And uh, for the first couple of years, I, I was just working with the clients that, that came to our agency and and then those clients' families started to call me. They got in touch with me and they said, we don't know what to do. We're just at the end of our rope. We're so frustrated. We don't know what to do. We're afraid they're going to die. They're here at two o'clock in the morning, pounding on the door, you know, these kinds of things. And they want money and I don't know what they give it to them. What if I don't give it to them and they die and all that stuff. And I had no idea at all what mm. to tell them. But what I did was I invited them into sessions. I started having sessions with the families, with the family members. Mm. And sometimes they were friends or, you know, colleagues. It wasn't just family, but people who loved addicts. Um, so as I was listening to them, I, I heard patterns of behavior that started to um, give me a, a roadmap of how to work with them because they were enabling the addict that they loved so much. And the, my simple definition of, of enabling is when we do something for somebody else that they can and should be doing for themselves. So they were enabling. And, and an enabled addict, what we know now, 
they don't recover because why should they? They've got everything handed to them. People are doing things for them. People are driving them to the liquor store. People are letting them live in their house and be really nasty and punch holes in the walls when they're angry. And this is not good for the family. This is not good for the addict. To me, enabling is not a loving act because it keeps addicts stuck in their addiction. There's not a lot of incentive for them to change anything. So I started working with the family around other strategies, other things that they could do to be able to actually help the addict get unstuck from the addiction. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy because sometimes these family members were kind of addicted to their enabling behaviors. They were addicted to the addict. Mm -hmm. It's like they're, it's like they're in on the roller coaster with the addict just sitting right next to them. And when the addict is up here doing well, they're doing great. When the addict isn't doing so well, the family members aren't doing so good either. And so that had to change. There were just a number of things that needed to be different for recovery to be able to happen in a family. So that's how that happened. I, I didn't go out looking for it. It kind of got dumped in my lap. And I'm happy with that. I mean, you know, obviously I was, I was meant to do this. And I think, I think because my family, I come from a family of addiction, they're pretty self-absorbed. You know, they didn't care a whole lot about me and what I was going through. They wouldn't have come for counseling to help me, right? But for me to be able to work with families who will be willing to do that kind of work and love their addicts that much to do that. I love being able to do that. I love watching a family just bloom. How beautiful is yeah. that? And yeah. it's, you're quite right. <laughs> it is, uh, there are so many facets to what we, what you have just described though. Um, there is the enabling, but there is so much more to family dynamics. There's all the core beliefs. There's all the, the things that have happened in those enablers' lives that is hmm. determining, determining how right. they behave. And That's so right, therefore, cause... you can't just focus on the addict. Ah, let's, let's get the addict right, and then the whole family will be so nice. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> That's right. Because, you know, I, and what you're saying is so right. It's so true. Because so many of the family members who have enabling behaviors they're people pleasers they really want to they really and 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 actually when when somebody's a people pleaser another word for codependent and you know it's a buzzword in the addiction circles mm -hmm. codependency but really what codependency is about is when you put other people's needs ahead of your own on a fairly consistent basis. So your needs go on the back burner. And so sometimes people who are doing those behaviors think, well, I'm so nice. I'm, so, I'm just such a nice person. Why is everybody always treating me so badly? Yeah. Really, the, the people pleasing is about self-protection. It's about self-protection because people who want to please other people do it because they don't like conflict. They hate conflict. Mm. They don't want to be in situations where somebody is going to be angry with them or frustrated with them or disappointed in them. Mm. And so they learn how to say yes 
when sometimes they really need to be saying no. And so I need to work with people, with the family members around that. What's it going to be like for you to change what you say, what you do? How's that going to feel? It's really scary for them. But they know they need to do it because the addict isn't going to be the one to come to them and say, please set some healthy boundaries for me, (laughs) right? Like that is not going to happen. Maybe later when they're in recovery, they might come and say, thank you for having done that. But it's a thankless job to be the loved one of people with addiction and do it well, do it in healthy ways, thankless job. Yeah. So there's a lot of work to be done for the addict and for the family. Sorry. No, no, no. Yes, I'm right. Yes, I'm right, Kenneth. And and you're obviously the, the situation that you're talking about is that the addict is still living with the family and is still active in his addiction. He is he or she is mm. um, out there showing the behaviors that are not so nice. Yet we want to help this person. After all, that's mm. that's that's the core um, core statement here we believe that really those people who come to you are really still interested in in the addict and uh, And having a relationship and having a relationship but no i work with with families where the addict isn't always living at home when they're living at home it's kind of easier because you have the the families have more leverage in terms of boundaries healthy boundaries that they can set but i was working with people who were on the street, but their families were still coming and visiting them and giving them right. money and, right. and driving them places and doing that kind of thing, which just wasn't helpful at all. So it, it depends. Some people are still with their families and some aren't, but most of, most of the families I work with, they're, the people that they love with addiction are still in active addiction. Yeah. Yeah. So then I started to realize that I wanted to help more people than I was able to help because what I was doing with these families was working. And the addicts were starting to sit up and take notice and say, "Uh uh-oh, you know, this isn't working for me as well as it used to. I might have to change something. Oh, dear. You know, And, and so the families started to get healthier all together. It was a wonderful thing to see. And so I knew that I was onto something. So I wrote a book, or the book kind of wrote itself actually, but I wrote a book that um, won a number of awards, USA awards and international book awards. And I was so surprised by this because when when we're addicts, even in recovery, I mean, I never thought I'd ever do anything that was gonna make the world a better place ever. It never even occurred to me because the self-absorption, the pain of being an addiction, right? But um, this is my book, and it's called Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself. It's the top 10 survival tips for loving someone with an addiction. So I wrote this book for the loved ones, not the addicts. Don't give it to the addict. Don't Mm. give it to your addict because they hate my book. They hate my book. Because I'm talking about boundaries. I'm talking about, you know, things that they don't want the loved ones to do. So, yeah. Very, very, very true. Let's stick with that vein, though. So yeah. it is, uh, it is, let's, let's do an example. 
That's an example. Uh, we addict addiction is such a broad thing. Addiction means you try to escape your reality and you right. do so with the help of either chemicals, that could be alcohol, smoking, um, harder drugs, um, or it could yeah. be behaviors such as right. gambling, eating disorders, these kind of things. Porn, um, overspending, exactly. all kinds of things. Exactly. All kinds of things. So what would you say to a, uh, a parent who comes to you and their 20-year-old son uh, still living at home and is spending virtually 12 hours a day um, on uh, internet games and is really very focused on that. With that, he has got a bit of a community. After all, there's the, the modern games. There is actually some interaction there. People are playing together. But ultimately, mm -hmm. there is no drive towards anything else, but there is this, this focus solely on on the gaming and yeah. there is and he's taking pretty much this person is taking pretty much all the the uh, addictive the the substance use uh disorder kind of tick boxes keeps doing it uh, despite the fact he knows it's it's not really good for him um and yeah. uh, self-isolation moving away from from other things what would you tell a parent? Um, that must be such mm. a common scenario out there. It's pretty common. Um, I've, I've been working in this field for 30 years, so um, I've certainly had that scenario happen. And I'll just preface it by saying that there are people who think of my book as tough love, and tough love has gotten a really bad rap you know, because tough love is love. And sometimes it's the most loving thing you can do for somebody, I think. So prefacing it with that, I, I wouldn't necessarily tell the family what to do, but I would explore with them, you know, like, for example, where is he getting the money to buy all these video games? Whose internet is he using? The way the reason that this is happening is because he's being allowed to do this. You have been allowing him to do this. So what might it be like for you to call your internet company and see how you can shut the internet off when you're not using it yourself so that that just isn't available to him? He may want to go out and, you know, maybe get some training and get a job. Very nice. Very nice. You know, so so it's and and really the bottom line of there's a couple of bottom lines for me. But the bottom line in working with the families is we for the families to be able to say to the addicts they love so much, we love you. And we love you so much. And we realize that we've been doing some things that haven't been good for you. And we're sorry about that. Like what what person would not want to hear his parents make an amend? <laughs> so we we understand now. We've been getting some help and we understand that we've made some mistakes and we're really sorry about that. And we love you so much that we've decided that we're not going to support you in active addiction anymore. It's because we love you, not because we don't. 
And it's also because it's breaking our hearts. It's so hard for us. I think addicts need to come out of their own self-absorption and understand that they affect the people around them, right? So so we, we've made a decision that we're not going to support you in active addiction, but we will support you in whatever ways we can. Mm. If you make the choice to go into some kind of active recovery, we'll be there for you 100%. And I, and I tell them not to go into it 101%, just 100%. Don't work harder than the addict. <laughs> because oh. that goes back into enabling. So sometimes what that means is if you're, if you're not willing to play by our rules in this house that we pay for, that you're kind of a guest in because you're 20 years old, then you may have to go and using hesitant language, not get out, you have to go. But, you know, we might have to look at that. We might have to look at you not living here. Um, if you decide to go into active recovery, then we can we can look at maybe you coming back, you know, but we just love you too much to support something that's bad for you. So we're not going to do it anymore. Beautifully said. Beautiful choice. Other, yeah. That's the other bottom line for me is that whether we see addiction as a disease, whether we see it as, you know, a genetic predisposition, whether we mm. see it as nature versus nurture, whatever, however we see it. Underneath all of it, it's a choice to stay in it. We didn't choose to become addicts. I don't know anybody who did. I certainly didn't. Mm. But once we're there, I mean, we know, I'm sure you did too, Stefan. We know as addicts that our lives aren't going so well. We see people around us who, you know, maybe the same age as us, who are married and children and they have a job and they have money and they, yeah. they, they seem to be happy and they're healthy. And we know that. We know our lives are a mess. And so when we, when we get to that place of knowing that, that's when we can make a different choice. There's so much help out there for addicts. Not a lot of help out there for their loved ones, which is why I do what I do. But there's so much help out there for addicts, so much. Mm. So at that point, it becomes a choice about whether you stay in active addiction or you go into active recovery. And every one of us, millions of us who know, who, who are in recovery, we know we're making the choice to be in recovery. Whether we think we have a disease or not, or whatever mm. we think. We know we're making the choice every single day, which I've done for 35 years. And of course, I don't have to sit here anymore and think I'm going to make a choice to not use today. But sometimes at 35 years, I look outside at this beautiful day in Vancouver and I live by the water and I have a view of the water. I have not always lived this way, trust me, but I have a view of the ocean. And, and I think to myself, this would be such a good day to just go to the beach and smoke a joint. And then sometimes my, my brain will say, no one will know, but, but the most important person in the planet would know. I would know. And so, you know, sometimes those feelings come up. I don't know if they ever mm. completely go away, mm. but, but I make a choice to stay clean and sober because life 
is so much better. Which is beautiful, isn't it? But that is that is coming from from a person who is now living the life, and this life is not suddenly there. We actually work mm -mm. on that life every minute of the day, and it's yeah. as you say, these are not not always. Oh, these are very rarely conscious choices. I'm eight years down the line yeah. now, and. There are, however, times when, ah, oh, I could murder a glass of wine. Oh, yes, please. Uh -huh. And it and, just comes And that's up. a normal thing to think, I think, for an, for somebody who's been in addiction. Absolutely. I, I think that's, a, you know, and, and, and why me? Why can't I have a glass of wine? Why can't I smoke <laughs> a joint sometimes? And then we get into the tantrum. And, but I, I'd like to show you my favorite mug, which I happen to have here. Um, it says... Live a life you love. Yes, yes, that's because exactly. Because what's it. the point of doing anything else? What's but, the point of living any other life? No, 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 no. You bloody rebel, you! Um, we have been indoctrinated by <laughs> generations that you go to work. You are who you are at work. You there's certain achievements, standards, and crap that you set yourself. Um, so now we need to relearn uh, a lot of values for ourselves. We need to relearn the, the how to look after ourselves in the very first instance. And very, very few yes. people actually do that. And yeah. uh, certainly, in let's say I'm, I'm mid fifties. Um, if I look around my the the people that. I work together with that I sort of bounce into, bump into uh, in my life. Um, there is one tribe, there's one group that I meet through my show, through my my actions. And these are people who have seen exactly the light and the necessity to actually look after themselves. If I look, for example, at my work, there are the hard going, no, 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 bang, 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 bang. We're going to work, 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 work. And then we're going to boom, bust, boom, bust. And there is this kind of behavior there. So this is, I've, regrettably, the reality for so many out there. And some yeah. of, most of it, not most of it, some of it is, is self-constructed. <laughs> self these beliefs are, these are, have, they have taken on the core beliefs that in order to be something, they have to work really, really, really hard, 120%. Um, other things that is put upon them, um, I mean, there is, uh, even if you don't like to work, if you're a single mum uh, with two school children and you're trying to do two, and three jobs. And that's work. That's work. That single mum with two kids or whatever, yeah. they're working. Hell Unfortunately, yet. society doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, give them that. Oh, please. Oh, so when you're saying but staying at home. No, I'm thinking about the yeah. young mum who is balancing the children, who is running to two and different job. low paid jobs um, yeah. in order to make yeah. ends meet. Uh, of course, yeah. she doesn't look after herself. She barely has the money yeah. to scrape together to feed the kids. Yes, as yeah. if she was able to to live healthily herself. So please. And that's a horrible, that's a horrible situation that our society perpetuates. It's just. Uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but it exactly. definitely exists it's all over the place. Exactly. So let's please, so please don't come back to me and say, oh, you you, you and your head in the clouds. Uh, how the hell can I look after myself? You might well, find... Well, you know, I, I have a, a chapter in my book, actually the longest chapter in my book, 
is uh, about self-care. And what it says, the title of that one, is that self-care does not equal selfish. And so a lot of times, a lot of times, loved ones, male or female, but especially female, because we are taught to give and give and give until we're so depleted. And, and And we're taught to absolutely never be selfish. How can you be selfish? To me, there's a difference between selfish and selfish. And selfish is somebody who says, I want what I want. I want it when I want it. I want it right now probably with a swear word put in there. I want it right now. And I, I will climb on, I will just, you know, I will hurt anybody who gets in my way. Now that sounds more like the self-absorbed addict. And that sounds more like selfishness. Uh We're talking about, you know, there are ways, there are ways for people who are in the situation that you're talking about to find some even small changes that they can make to start taking care of themselves. It doesn't mean that you have to have $100,000 to go on a yacht and have a vacation. It, there's a lot of ways that we can be taking care of ourselves that will make our lives so much better and they're small changes. And one of, the, one of the most important ones is to learn about self-respect. In my opinion, self-respect is the most important thing we either have or don't have, mm. you know. Um, and there's a difference between self self-respect and self-esteem, in my view. Can I just explain that for a minute? Please. Yeah. Okay. So with self-esteem, it kind of comes from the outside in. It would be like you saying to me, Oh, you're so great, you're doing so well, you know, all this stuff. If I think I'm doing well, then I can have that and I can take that in. But so many times when people compliment us or stroke us, praise us, we don't believe that about ourselves. Hmm. And we kind of look at that person who's saying, you know, like, are you nuts? Like, Hmm. that's not who I am. With self-respect, it comes from the inside out. So we do the work that we need to do to really get to know ourselves and really get to like ourselves. You know, we talk about loving ourselves. Let's like ourselves first, you know, and what do you need to do or not do to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and be okay with who you see? Like what, how that self-respect develops when you do the next right thing. And then the next right thing after that, and then the next right thing after that, you can pat yourself on the back for and feel good about. That's mm-hmm. how self-respect start, starts to grow. And people, people who are marginalized or, you know, like the mother you're talking about or any kind of marginalization, people who don't believe in themselves have such a hard time with this. And it's so important to do the work inside that it takes to respect ourselves, because if we don't, other people won't treat us respectfully either. We right. have to be respecting ourselves to be able to get what we want from other people. If we don't respect ourselves, why should anybody else respect us? That's a key thing, isn't it? And when you're in yeah. addiction, you don't see that. I remember mm-hmm. myself uh, saying, why are you so disrespectful to me, to my family? I work so hard, yet I was probably not the nicest person. And 
you know, I, yeah. I please, yeah. I take all the blame um, for the my own behaviors. So this, mm. this, but then on the flip side, now I can see that it is an ongoing journey, an ongoing True. journey. I was, yeah. my family was away on, on holiday recently and I was, I stayed home because with, uh, we were hit by COVID, money was tight, etc. Yeah. So I said, look, right. I stay at home. I work my guts out. You guys actually have a bit of a nice time out. During that time, now no longer needing to immediately look after my family and being there for every Tom, Dick and Harry and every brush fire and chaos that arises in a family. And I suddenly had a week to actually look after myself and actually put boundaries around my own well-being, looking after myself, eating those things that I wanted and that my, be, my body needed, uh, the good stuff. The so not, stuff. not a bunch of Fritos or anything, not a lot yeah. of corn chips. Like uh, no, 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 stuff, no, no, right? no, 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 no. I'm talking actually, hey, I want to eat something. My family doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, my wife doesn't like spicy. I like spicy any time of the day. Yeah. So I oh, started yeah. cooking some really nice food for myself. And it was such a... Mm. Uh, an act of love to cook for myself and to actually show me the respect. And I I, uh, cleaned up the garage and I felt good about it. And I raked up the leaves and I felt good about it. And it was that, I feel, wow, did I just do that? Wow, okay. And I was always pissed off that I come home and there's mountains of, of dishes there. And I washed up every evening and I looked at the kitchen and it was clean. And it was, oh, that's my kitchen. It's clean. I like it. Yeah. And it's little things yeah. like that. And it was so that's beautiful. Right. And it was, right. but it's all compound interest. You do one thing. Oh, it's not bad. Next thing, tiny little things. And within half an yeah. hour, you have done five things that make you feel good. Guess how you walk yeah. out of that half an hour. You think, yeah. okay. okay. Well, I teach people, I teach people uh, how to pat themselves on the back. And mm. the way you do that is you put your arm out. Want to, want to do this with me? Put your arm out. Oh, that's a. Turn your hand. Oh yeah. Okay, that's over. better. <laughs> I, yeah. Come on, in Germany, put the arm out. Oh, okay. Yeah, that can be misconstrued. No, put your arm out. Turn your okay. hand over. Yeah. I shall and do that. Bring yeah. your hand back. Bring your hand back. And pat yourself on the back <laughs> for everything that you can think of. Everything, yeah. even the, the little tiny things. We need to be respecting ourselves. We need to be validating ourselves, yeah. and it, it it just. It just feels so much better to do it that way. So, Hilarious. and that's the start. That's the start. Doing those little things, and and then we teach our kids how to pat themselves on the back. You know, mm. I think kids love this kind of stuff. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, that's where the star charts as a little one yeah. come in, and it would be so nice if we if we keep going. But then, what do you do if if they don't earn their stars? That's again where we come in a circle to your maybe tough love to stop enabling yeah. um, because if if they don't well, what you do is you talk with them about mm-hmm. choices. Mm-hmm. If you do your stars, I'm using your language, but if you do your stars, if you if you do what you're supposed to do, this will happen. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, this will happen. Which one do you choose? Mm-hmm. You know, you say you say to a little boy, a little girl you know, you need to go put your toys away and clean up your room. And she says, no, I'm not going to clean my room. And and you appreciate her spunk, but she needs to go clean up her room. So you say to her, okay, if 
and, and maybe she'll even throw in an, I hate you. You're a horrible mommy. Right. Just for, just for good measure. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Cause they know what that feels like as a parent. So, so you say, okay, if, it, you have a choice here, little four-year-old. If you clean up your room, you can come out and have um, have dinner with us and ice cream and watch TV. And if you don't clean up your room, then you're going to have to stay in your room until it's cleaned up. So up to you. And I'll, I'll leave you here for a minute. And you can think about which one you'd rather have. When you approach people that way, and they understand the boundary and they understand the consequence and how it can work better for them. Because there's really always a what's in it for me thing. Why should I clean my toys up? Mm. Well, this is why. Why shouldn't I use addiction anymore? Well, this is why. Okay. Then the person can start making choices that they want to make, not for somebody else. You get people going into rehab, for example, or even AA 12-step programs. For somebody else, hmm. doesn't work well for very long. Yeah, exactly. Oh, very good, very good. And I, I like the way that you're that you're <clears throat> that you're using the word tough love because it has got yeah. such a bad rap and it is such a such a bad thing. I think the setting boundaries is such a such an important bit, and setting boundaries yeah. we are all so bad in. And therefore, for it's, you to be to be part of a family uh, where there is addiction inside your family is actually a huge privilege. It's a huge opportunity to grow mm-hmm. uh, if you look at it from that angle. You would yeah, certainly absolutely. have you would certainly have not chosen to be in that situation. But now that you're in the situation, yeah. you are outside of your comfort zone, and with hindsight, five years down the line, you will probably think, wow, uh, if I could go back and change things, many of the people I meet say, actually, I wouldn't change a thing because it made me the new person. It made me the new person who I am right now. And that person is so improved compared with the version one um, that, that was then. Uh, that is I, I would amazing. Make, I would make one change. I would make sure that chocolate didn't have any calories. <laughs> I would make that. I would definitely make that change. Right. Then you yeah. would still hunt the sugar high. You would still want the dopamine that comes with the sugar high. Oh, Come no. on. No, 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 no. If it's not chocolate, it's not worth it. That's, All right. that's kind of how. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I can go with that. But but you know when we when we. Boundaries are fairly easy to learn how to set. There's a certain way to language them, and I I help families to to learn how to do that. But a boundary without a consequence that means something to the addict Mm. is just words, Mm. and and too many people have have said those words without follow through too many times. So, you know, you get a mom or dad who says to their addict, you can't use in this house. I don't want you using in this house. And there's no consequence for whether they're going to use in the house. They're going to keep using in the house because why not? So there needs to be like with the child I talked about before. Does does the concert does the consequence mean something to that child? Does she want to come out and have Mm. dinner and have ice cream for dessert and watch TV with the family? Mm. Is that something that's going to mean something to her? Probably so. 
So when you're going to set a boundary, the boundary is you need to clean up your toys. The consequence is this is what's going to happen if you don't. Mm. Make a choice. Make a choice. And let's teach that to children from a very early age. Mm. I like that. It's a cause and effect universe, you know, whether we want it to be or not. We make a cause, we get an effect of that cause, and that's just how that is. So it's such a such a basic <laughs> truth, but we are all shying away from those confrontations. And uh, it is so important. But what you're doing is you're not just being mean, you're actually setting boundaries, you're setting, setting love into, into concrete, so to speak. You're doing it, is, it because you love your child. Absolutely. You're doing it because you love the addict and you don't, you know, otherwise we're preparing children, mm. we're preparing people for a world that doesn't exist out there. Exactly. And how can that be loving? How can that be a loving act? They grow up, they go out into a world, they expect to be enabled, they expect that they're they're entitled, and how long is that going to work for them till they wind up in jail or psych work, jails, institutions, and death? So let's do the right thing for the people we love, and let's do it for the right reasons. Candace, you're an amazing woman. Let's let's kick addiction to the curb, man. Let's just Mm. do it. Love the addict, hate the addiction. And that's right. But love exactly. the addict by setting boundaries. That's so true. That's right. So true. Yeah. Candace, show us again your book. Um, because that's yeah. out there. You've got all those yes. this beautiful information um, in there. And I also have a workbook that goes with the book. Mm-hmm. Is, and it's won awards too, again, much to my surprise. But here's the yeah. here's the book. Loving, loving an addict. Yourself. Perfect. The top 10 survival tips for loving someone with an addiction. Beautiful. Yes. And and if you if if you're in the situation or you know somebody who is, please don't give up. Please don't give up. And and know that I mean addiction is so rampant now. You walk down the street, and even though people don't have a sign on their forehead saying, I'm affected by somebody's addiction. Yeah. It's like 99.99999% of people are affected by somebody's addiction or they know somebody who is. <laughs> but that's, that's the crazy thing, isn't it? The chemical addiction, yeah. chemical addiction in New Zealand, we estimate one in three. Um, and people say, no, 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 that's far too much. No, 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 rubbish it is when you actually talk to the people yeah. in the addiction field. And that and does you not... Have, and you have one addict... The, the number of people who are affected, you've got mom and dad and grandma Absolutely. and grandpa and cousins and brothers and sisters mm. and aunts and uncles and, and bosses and teachers and therapists and doctors and people who are all affected by one person's addiction. Let's learn how to deal with this so we can stop it. We can stop this. It's not rocket science. Beautiful. Candace, you're an amazing woman. Um, if people agree with my assessment and want to get uh, to know you better, want to find you, maybe even work with you, where can they yeah. go? They can go to my website. My company name is Love With Boundaries because we need to love with boundaries. Hmm. And so it's lovewithboundaries.com. And um, we offer uh, a free no strings attached, no obligation, free 30-minute consultation, by usually by Zoom. 
if you fill out our questionnaire so we know just a little bit more what, about what you're going through, hmm. that's on the website. And I can I can get that link to you if you want, Stefan. So you can put it on Absolutely. your page. Guys, look at down there. Look at it in the in the YouTube video in the podcast uh, description in the show notes. It's all there. Okay. So Candace's yeah. uh, information is there, guys. And so 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 all you, I just want to say all you have to do is fill out the questionnaire. As soon as we get it, we will contact you and we'll set up the thirty minute call. So just wanted to say that beautiful because addiction beautiful. addiction doesn't wait, so we don't wait either. Excellent. And that's true. But equally, there is not a one stop, one second fix. Um, Candace no. and, uh, is not, not giving you a, you just read these 10 points and your life will forever be the same and uh, will be different. Um, it might start to change your mind, but there's true. still going to be work to do. Please, yeah. absolutely. But yeah, guys, look forward to it because it's, it's, a, it's a time for change. It's a time for growth. It's a time for, for huge transformation in a way that you can't even fathom yet. And that's beautiful. You will become a stronger human by the end of this journey. There are no two ways around that. Um, and you're going to be part of a brother and sisterhood that recognizes itself because you are not alone we just said there's so many people out there there's so many people who are suffering out there and there's a smaller amount but still a huge amount of people who have stopped suffering they have stopped yeah. being a survivor they've started to become thrivers and that's like yeah. people like candace and me we're going They're out not there stuck anymore We're exactly. not stuck. Exactly. And that is so beautiful. So we invite you to come along on this journey because this journey yeah. is very real. It's there. There is it's much least... more fun. Exactly. And nowadays I'm still an addict, but I'm addicted to life. And I love that addiction. I actually have no problem with that addiction whatsoever. So no, that's yeah. brilliant. Guys, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, this was again an amazing interview. And certainly, Candace, you you made me think and you made me sort of reflect on some of the of my behaviors as a parent, as my behavior as a, as an addict. Um, so yes, it is, it's a constant growth. And I choose nowadays to reflect on those kind of things with the help of my show. Um, and it's beautiful. So therefore, if any of you guys out there were thinking, wow, okay, wow, maybe my story has meaning too, then beautiful, share your story. And maybe let's, let let maybe start connecting with other people who have got similar stories maybe go to a meeting and see that and uh, maybe therefore we also need to say uh, one last shout out um candace you're doing such an amazing work there are uh, literally millions of people out there who are doing good work for you guys so if if candace if if there are some reasons that people don't want to get in touch with you maybe there might be places uh that are closer to you physically literally closer around the corner um alanon um which is basically a 12-step program for for the the relatives um there are other sources around you maybe you guys if if you if you don't really like zoom or don't have the technical abilities and still want help speak to your gp to your family physician he she will probably be able to, to guide you towards the facilities and towards institutions around you 
one way or the other, you are not alone. There is help out there. There's hope out there. Do not give up. Go out there, guys. Live with passion and make this world worthwhile to be in. And that starts with you, by you looking after yourself. Candice, thank you again so much for coming on to my show. And thank you, you Stephanie. It's been fun. And you guys yeah. out there, look after yourself. Bye. Bye, everyone. Dream on.